Hey everybody, it's the Terrible Terror here, and I just want to give a quick intro to what you're about to hear. Now, I feel like Rod Sterling for a second. There's a door, <laughs> and Dave's behind that door. Um, <laughs> it's terrible. But what intro from the Terrible Tower podcast, Beeve, wasn't terrible. But anyway, so basically what you're about to hear is a, you know, a similar styled review in terms of the way that I do my podcasts, um, where it's a run-through of the film. But Dave is a lover of cinema, where I like to make fun of cinema. So... It's definitely going to be something a little different, but it's definitely something that's a lot of fun with a very kick-ass intro. So every month, you're going to get this drop in your feed. It's going to be a bonus episode. It's going to be based around something classic, sci-fi, horror, or it could even be something that's just really out of left field, like every once in a while that I do. It won't always be themed, because as you probably guessed... The theme that I've kind of done for this month is actually based around this bonus episode. When Dave first was talking to me about it, and, you know, we agreed that this was the best way, and he said, this is the movie that I'm planning on doing, and I was like, you know what, to kind of, you know, make everything mesh for the first drop of this episode, uh, I'm gonna do John Carpenter, I wanna do The Thing, and then from there, it was like, okay, well, then let's do Big Trouble in Little China, too. So might as well do it as a mix of Kurt Russell and John Carpenter, which is great. And I have a lot of fun doing the Big Trouble in Little China episode. And I'm really excited about doing the episode on The Thing just because of the guests that's going to be on. Um, and so that's uh, what you're going to get. <laughs> so that's why we kind of did this. But it could be... A multitude of things. So I hope you guys really do enjoy uh, this episode, this little bonus episode of a podcast from another world. And make sure that if you're coming to this uh, feed for the very first time, just because you want to hear Dave, go ahead and subscribe because every month there's going to be a new episode that's going to be dropping with the exception of one month where we're going to actually be doing uh, four different films for the whole month based around one director. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And that's where you won't get the bonus, but you're going to get a whole month of just Dave and I talking about movies and <laughs> making fun of movies and maybe also getting some really serious discussion because Dave, uh, man, he, when he goes all in on a film, he goes all in on a film. So I hope you guys enjoyed this bonus episode and I hope you guys enjoy a podcast from another world. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Can you hear me? Over. Yeah. 
at the first invasion from another planet. episode of the podcast from another world. I am your host Phantom Dark Dave and here we are in the brand new year of 2020 and I'm kicking off this brand new show. I want to start off by introducing myself and giving you a little insight on what to expect on this and upcoming episodes. Now some of you might already know who I am. I've been in the podcast world for almost five years I started off as a writer, I landed some interviews for my work, and then I was asked to join a podcast, and it kind of just took off from there. I've had the pleasure of recording as a co-host for the B-Movie Bros and the Black Cat Shadow podcast. Then, I went on to host a radio show called Real Antiques, as well as my last project, Dave's Pop Culture Podcast. So needless to say, I've kept myself busy for the last few years. For those of you who have followed me through my long journey, thank you, and I am excited you're here. Some of you might also recognize me because I've been a guest on the Terrible Terror podcast. Brian and I are great friends, and I've joined him for some crazy episodes, including, and definitely not limited to, the annual Christmas torture that he puts me through. Brian was kind enough to lend me some space on this podcast to run my own show and do things that I'm passionate about. Which brings me to new listeners. If you're tuning in because you're passionate about classic horror and classic sci-fi films and TV shows, but you have never heard me on a podcast before, hello. Thanks for giving it a try. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope you enjoy me as a host, and I hope you subscribe and stay tuned in. You know, I've been a movie guy my whole life. I did things too. You know, I used to read and play football outside, video games, hang out with other kids, all that stuff when I was growing up, but... Ever since I can remember, film has always just been number one. Ever since I was watching VHS tapes, I was building my collection, it just became this amazing obsession. And not even an obsession, but just like a way of life. Ever since I discovered the horror genre, I've been hooked. I collected every single VHS tape that I could get my hands on or afford, (laughs) right? I'm happy to say I still collect them. I still have hundreds of thousands of VHS tapes. DVDs first came out when I was in high school. And I know some of you thinking, wow, you're just a baby, or wow, you're really old. Well, I'm 35, so you can consider me whatever you want. But the reason I mention this is because the first DVD I ever watched was the 1954 Creature from the Black Lagoon. This was the film that did me in. This was my introduction into classic films, okay? And I'm not going to spend the entire episode just gushing over that particular film, though I know I could. But I will let you know that it was my gateway into a world that I will never retire from. And I also want to mention Brian loves The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And he covered the whole franchise on the Terrible Terror podcast. I'd hope you check that out. But if not, it's in the feed. Do it. It's really great. DVDs allowed me to easily track down not only classic horror films that I hadn't seen, but classic sci-fi films as well. And there's just been this everlasting desire of mine 
to be able to just sit back and just talk about these movies with an audience that really loves them or has never heard of them but's willing to listen. Another thing that you must know about the show is I will never bash the movies I talk about. That's right. If you download an episode because you love the subject matter, great news. I do too. So you will never hear me rip on nor trash talk about any of these films. Now, I'm not saying anything negative about shows that do that. I'm just saying that everyone has their own style and personality, and this is mine. Clock out from reality and time. Come with me to a place beyond the pattern of stars and deep into the depths of the ocean as we travel to a podcast from another world. Okay, guys, the way I'm going to do this is similar to the way Brian does when he does his reviews. I'm going to run through the movie, include audio clips, and have a lot of fun, but I'm not going to pound on the table. So today we're going to talk about a movie that involves a group of scientists, a group of American Air Force officers, and how they have to team together to defend themselves against an alien that they unearthed. It's from 1951. It's the thing from another world. So here we go. We open up in the blistering cold of Anchorage, Alaska, where we meet our reporter and my favorite character, Scotty. Hi, Eddie. Hiya, Scotty. Cold enough for you? Oh, I'm only faintly alive. It's 25 below. You know everybody? We haven't met. McPherson. Hi. Ned Scott, Captain Henry. Scotty just got in today. Hi. Care to join us? Oh, wait till I count my fingers. I may have lost one. <laughs> Scotty's a warm weather man. We met at Accra. Quite a spot. 105 in the shade, and the women hardly wore anything at all. She's very intelligent of them. You just lie there in a hammock while three of them stand there fanning you. Remember, Scotty? I remember. Oh, boy, when I die, I hope I go to Accra. I was there. I'm in. What are you doing here, Mr. Scott? Looking for a story. Scotty's a newspaper man. How many? Three. Cards? I'll play these. Oh, caught from ambush. Check. Well, I'll bet a buck. And I'll fold. Call. Pair of queens? I thought so, aces. You ought to know better than to try fooling our captain. Only dames can do that. Lieutenant Dykes, I promise Slip you... Slip of the tongue, Captain. What do you hear from the general, Scotty? Oh, your General Fogarty's nursing his secrets like a June bride. You know, I got an idea. There's a guy in Seattle who knows a whole radar defense story. Loves to talk. General McLaren. You tell General Fogarty you want to go to Seattle, and uh, Pat and I will fly you there. I met General McLaren, too. Warm in Seattle. They got girls there. Without fur pants on. What about it, Captain? 
They could be right. You'll never be able to shoe our captain southward with his heart wrapped around the North Pole. That'll do, Mr. McPherson. What's going on at the North Pole? Some scientists are holding a convention up there. Looking for polar bear tails. Ever hear of Dr. Carrington? The fellow who was at Bikini? The same. Well, they're holding about 2,000 miles north of here, a whole bunch. Botanists, physicists, electronic... Including a pinup girl. Very interesting type, too. Very. Captain Henry can give you any data you want on her. Ken, you probably shouldn't have said that. You know how to capture... Someday I hope to have a navigator and a co-pilot who are at least dry behind the ears. Oh, Captain. <laughs> you mail order it. Henry, report to General Fogarty's quarters at once, please. The next scene, Captain Henry walks into the General's office, and he better close the door. Come in. Close the door. Yes, sir. Good evening, sir. All right. Well, that didn't take you long to get here. Not many places around here to hide, sir. Just got a queer message from your picnic party up north from Dr. Carrington himself. Believe an airplane unusual type crash in our vicinity. Please send facilities to investigate. Most urgent. What do you suppose you'd find up there well, besides a good-looking girl? I don't know, sir. Any of our ships missing? No. No Canadians, either. Could be Russians. They're all over the pole like flies. Don't get nervous. You're going. Yes, sir. Take along a dog team or anything you might need for rescue work. Yes. Come in. Close the door. Buddy, do you suppose the Pentagon could send us a revolving door? Could be, sir. We got ten girls of pith helmets last week. Another report, sir. Okay, that's all. Oh, and tell the old dear if there's any more messages come in from Dr. Carrington that I want to be notified personally, no matter what the time. Yes, sir. Well, here's your weather. There's a front moving in, but you ought to have time to get there and back without bumping into it. General, that newspaper man, Scott. Yeah, what about him? He'd like to go with us. It's all right with me if you maroon him up there. Now, don't get me wrong about who gets marooned. And I'd appreciate it if you didn't smash into the landing ski this time. That was an unavoidable accident, sir. Yeah. Well, look, I'll expect you back sometime tomorrow night. Yes, sir. And I'll close the door. Just tell me what you find up there. No one tells me anything. The crew begins flying towards the North Pole. And as they do, they get a call on their radio. What's your position? Three hours out. Captain, switch over to your radio compass and check it against your magnetic heading. What's on your mind, Tex? We've got some kind of disturbance up here, and it's whacking away at everything. What do you figure it's from? Don't know. We noticed it last night. Six to eight degrees difference, Pat. We're quite a bit off here, Tex. You better home in on me. I'll leave the key open. Or would you rather have me sing to you? Leave the key open. It's afraid you'd say that. They arrive at the North Pole, and we get to meet more of our main characters, including our captain's love interest, Miss Nicholson, or, as he calls her, Nikki. Well, how was your trip? It's all right. Not usual. Well, that's fine. I think Dr. Carrington wants to see you. Dr. Carrington's going to have to wait. I want to talk to you. I want to <laughs> what say about? There was a downright dirty trick you played on me. Now, Pat, don't lose your temper. Why did you do it? Just tell me why. Well, uh, your legs aren't very pretty, and I didn't... have to be- write it on a note and put it on my chest. Other people got up before I did. I'm sorry, Pat. I mean, I six really people didn't read that note before I woke up. Now the whole Air Force is laughing at me. Not so loud. They'll hear They've you. They probably already heard. The only place it hasn't been is on a billboard. Ooh, I didn't know you had such a nasty temper. <laughs> now, Pat, just careful. Now, take it easy. Now, wait a minute. We had a lot of fun when you were up here. And then when you asked me down to Anchorage, you deliberately fed me a lot Tell of... Tell me something. Did you really drink all those drinks? Mm-hmm. You didn't throw any away or uh-huh. anything? Not a one? No. Holy cat. <laughs> well, I was good. And another thing. Why did you leave? When I woke up in the morning, you were gone. Well, I told you I had to take that cargo plane back here. You told me? Don't you remember? No. <laughs> 
After they discuss a little bit about their last rendezvous, she introduces him to our mad scientist of the group, Dr. Carrington. Dr. Carrington, Captain Henry's here. Yes, I know. How do you do, Captain? Doctor. Miss Nicholson, would you add a note to the others? Sure. November 2nd, 11.30 a.m. Deviation in sector 19 continues 12 degrees, 20 minutes east. No lessening or wavering of disturbing element. That's all. Well, Captain, can we start now? Do you mind telling me where we're going, Doctor? 48 miles due east from here. You must have said an airplane crash. Is that what we're looking for? I don't know, Captain. I think you better explain, Doctor. Oh, I'm Henry. sorry. Miss Nicholson, would you read Captain Henry my first notes? Sure. I was thinking only of the vagueness of my information. I dislike being vague. Uh, November 1st. Yesterday. 6.15 p.m. Sound detectors and seismographs registered explosion due east. At 6.18, magnetometer revealed deviation 12 degrees, 20 minutes east. That deviation has been constant. We ran into it just before we reached here. Such deviation possible only if a disturbing force equivalent to 20,000 tons of steel or iron ore had become, had become part of the earth at about a 50-mile radius. You're getting a bit beyond me, but it sounds like a meteor, doesn't it? Yes, very much, except for one thing. We'll show it to Captain Henry. Oh, yes, sir. We have some special telescopic cameras. On the appearance of radioactivity, a Geiger counter trips the release and the cameras function. They were working last evening. Mm -hmm. This is the result. This first picture was taken three minutes before the explosion, or 6.12. You can see the small dot low there in the corner. Mm -hmm. On the next picture, one minute later... That dot is moving from west to east, moving fast enough to form a street. What should it be using? Thousands of a second. Oh, moving pretty fast, wasn't it? Here at 6.14, it's moving upward. 6.15, it drops to the earth and vanishes. A meteor might move almost horizontal to the earth, but never upward. And it isn't a meteor. That's obvious. How do you determine the distance to the point of impact from here? By computation. Ready? Well, it's quite simple, Captain. We have the time of arrival of the sound waves and the detectors, and also the arrival time of the impact waves and the seismograph. By computing the difference, it becomes quite obvious that they were caused by a traveling object, and the distance from here is approximately 48 miles. You lost me, I'll take your word for it. One thing, Doctor, 20,000 tons of steel is an awful lot of metal for an airplane. It is for the sort of airplane we know, Captain. Yeah, we better be going. I thought you'd think so. Reading will check every quarter hour. Yes, will you want me, Doctor? No, it won't be necessary, Mr. So they take off in a plane and they're heading towards the crash site. And they're all piled in there. They got a whole bunch of the snow dogs inside there. And as they're flying over, they glimpse down and they kind of see a little bit of what the crash site looks like. It kind of looks like a giant frozen pond, but this is basically where the snow has just melted down. And so we just see kind of the shape of the figure in a way it's more like just a pattern that the ice is but there's a little bit of something that looks like a wing that's kind of sticking up out of the ice and so they don't really want to land too close to it so they land about half a mile back and they get with the snow dogs you know they hike all the way over and the closer they get they notice the wing getting a little bit bigger but is it a wing or is it something else they gather around it and they start to realize just how large this quote-unquote plane is that's underneath them but it's not really a plane is it they decide to back up and have everyone stand on the perimeter of what this object is 
And that pretty much tells us all we need to know. Hey. It's almost... Yeah. Almost a perfect... It is. It's round. We finally got one. We found a flying saucer. Can anybody see anything through the ice from where you are? Only an outline. Nothing but a dark shape there. Seems perfectly smooth. No doors or windows. I can't see any engine. I doubt if we find anything we call an engine. Dr. Carrington, this isn't any metal I know. Probably some new alloy. Get some filings for analysis. Right. Captain, I don't think we have a chance of chopping through the ice with axes. I know, Doctor. We think so, too. We're going to try to melt it out with thermite bombs. Oh, excellent. Doctor, where do you figure it's from? I don't know, Mr. Scott. Well, from this planet? I doubt it. Well, then, do you think that the answers to your questions will be much easier after we've examined the interior of the aircraft? Its occupants, if there are any. So they set up some explosives in an attempt to kind of free this flying saucer. And guess what? The explosives work in the sense that they blow up the ice and they cause the spaceship to sink further into the Earth. And then it catches on fire and it has an engine, so it explodes and the whole ship is destroyed. They walk over with the Geiger counter because it's given off a little bit of readings and they assume that the reading is just picking up part of the ship. But in fact, we discover something else. What is it? Looks like a man. It's got legs and a head. I can see him. Yeah, he must be over eight feet long. Somebody got out of that saucer. Got out or was thrown out and frozen fast before he could get clear. Man from Mars. How do you propose getting him out, Captain? I don't know. Use more thermite. Not this. Whatever's quickest. We don't have much time. Here's some axes. You can chop around and put the whole block in the sled and take it to the plane. I agree get with that. Get started. Give me room. Bob, clear the sled off and bring it over here. Eddie, get the ship warmed up. And be ready to get out of here in a hurry. They load up on the plane and fly back to the North Pole destination. They drag the block of ice into the storage room. The crew starts to wonder about defrosting the ice or chipping it away, but that's when Captain Hendry suggests that they go ahead and just let him stay frozen until they get further notice and further instructions from his superior officer. He assigns four-hour watch shifts and tells everybody, just keep your hands off. So they step out into the mess hall because... The scientists, they're not too happy about this, and, well, let's discuss it further. Well, gentlemen, Captain Henry, excuse me, Doctor, may I? Certainly. Captain, in relation to removing the body from the ice, I'd like to point out there are organisms that survive after death. What cold can destroy them? Now, in view of that... Doctor, I don't know anything. On the other hand, these same organisms may be dangerous. They may be carrying disease germs from another planet. Germs we couldn't cope with medically. Thank you, Doctor. No, I can't agree with you, Dr. Chapman. I don't either. Well, here's another. We don't know what effect the air of our Earth may have on this creature's remains. Sort of uh, go up in smoke, like the saucer, huh? Nonsense. Isn't that a little far-fetched? So is a gentleman from Mars. We're getting nowhere. We're consistent. I suggest that Captain Henry communicate with his superior at once. I'm Certainly, getting senile. We should have done that first thing. Next, the captain is getting ready for his evening with Nikki, and that's when Bob comes into the room to talk to him about the man in the ice and the effect that it's having on the guy who's supposed to watch him. What is it, Bob? I don't like to bother you like this, Captain, but it's about Lieutenant McPherson sitting in there with that thing in the block of ice. Getting nervous. Well, he wouldn't want me to tell you, sir, but he's having kittens. I haven't heard him squawk like this since we were over Reagan. Really? He 
see, sir, the ice is clearing up, and we can see that thing pretty good now. It's got crazy hands and no hair, and the eyes, well, they're open, and they look like they can see. Bob, I haven't heard you. Oh, it's got me, too, sir, and I wasn't in there very long. Besides that, it's pretty cold. I got the lieutenant an electric blanket. Good. <clears throat> Captain, I got a suggestion. Go ahead. Well, now, instead of these four-hour shifts, we could cut them in half, you see? Okay. Okay. You tell Barnes to take over in a half an hour at 2200. You take over at 2400 and I'll relieve you at 0200. I think you're right, sir. I think you are. Yes. Thanks. The captain and Nikki are talking about the man in the block of ice and how just crazy the idea is. She compliments him on how well he's handling the situation and then they begin to get sweet on each other and it's time to have a drink. Now, this is 1950s noir romance at its finest. Short of being Humphrey Bogart, which is my favorite, the captain is sitting in the chair, and he's got his arms tied behind his back, and Nikki is feeding him alcohol. Like, what? <laughs> They're talking about how, you know, it's really great for them to start over again, and, you know, he's going to do better this time around. There's talk on how, you know, he's really acting like a gentleman. And then that's when he reveals that his hands, they're not actually tied behind his back. And the whole time, he was just messing with her. And she's like, well, if I would have known you weren't tied up, I wouldn't have told you how I really felt about you. That's when he stands up and he's going to go check on his boys, but not before grabbing her and planting that 1950s kiss right on her lips. Next scene, Barnes is starting his watch shift. As more of the alien's figure becomes visible, it starts to give him the heebie-jeebies, and so he grabs a blanket and he throws it over the ice. However, the camera shows us that it's not just a blanket, it's actually a heating blanket. He sits down, thinking everything's alright, and that's when the ice starts to melt. Time begins to pass, and we see the ice kind of turn to water, and it starts leaking down profusely. We see the snow dogs outside kind of rise up out of the snow and they start to whimper because they can sense the thing. Barnes, he starts to pour himself some coffee, but when he does, we see the shadow of the thing reflect on him. That's when he turns around. He screams. He's terrified. He pulls out his gun and he fires at the thing. Then he runs into the room to meet with the captain. Captain Henderson! What's the matter, Corporal Chapman? Where's the captain? I've got to tell him. I've got to tell him that thing's alive. I saw it, sir. Chase me. That thing's alive. It's not dead. It's... Captain Henry. That thing's alive, sir. I saw it. I shot at it. I hit it. I know it. Nothing happened. It just kept coming at me, making a noise like a cat me. Captain, it was awful. You could have seen those hands and those eyes. Captain, you've got to do something about it. You've got... Back, Bob. Get some guns. Yes, sir. Now, Barnes, what happened? I'm sorry, sir. I don't know exactly, but all of a sudden it was out of the ice and alive and coming at me. I shot at it and hit it. Nothing happened, so I slammed the door and ran. Easy, easy. Sorry, sorry. Hey, I can't. Eddie, take care of him, will you? I'll be all right. Captain Hendry and the gang gather their guns, and they head into the storage room to find nothing but a block of ice with a mold of where the thing used to be. They discover that the heating blanket is what had let the thing loose. The door bursts open, and the wind just starts blowing snow inside. They hear the dogs outside, and so they peek out the window, and they see the thing 
actually fighting the dogs. He's swinging around like a wrestling match. He's flipping the dogs over, slamming them on the ground. And a few of the men, you know, they throw on their coats and they hurry outside. And that's when the thing takes off running into the storm. When they reach the dogs, they notice that one of them had actually bit the thing's arm off. And it's laying right there in the snow. They pick it up and take it inside for examination. And we find out what the thing actually is. Captain Hendry would help me if you, any of you, would describe what you saw out there. Well, it was too cold to see well, but the dogs had him down tearing at him. Yeah, I saw him get up with three of them hanging on his arm. Then he threw one dog at the rest. When we got there, two of them were dead. Oh, they looked like they'd been through a chopper. Uh, Where did you find the arm? It was partly under one of them, wasn't it? Yeah. dogs tear off an arm? This kind of an arm... Be careful, Doctor. Those barbs, whatever they are, are very sharp. Seems to be a sort of chitinous substance. Thank you, Mr. Doctor. Something between a beetle's back and a rose thorn. Thorn fingered, huh? Amazingly strong. Very effective if used as a weapon. <laughs> oh, very you don't have to worry about that. Not with an arm off and out in that cold. He's dead now. He got along all right in a block of ice for over 24 hours. He's pretty spry for a guy with 12 dogs on him. He sure After was. After losing an arm. In my mind. Amazing, isn't it? Amazingly strong. Strange. Sure. That is uh, blood on the hand, isn't it, Doctor? Yes, but not his blood. Probably from one of the dogs. There's no blood in the arm. No animal tissue. Doctor Stern, do you have a look at this under the microscope? Mm-hmm. No, Mr. Scott, I doubt very much if it can die, as we understand dying. Cats. Yes. Well, Doctor? No arterial structure indicated. No nerve endings visible. Porous, unconnected cellular growth. Just a minute. Imagine. Just man. a minute, Doctor. It sounds like you're trying to describe a vegetable. I am. Are you getting all of this? Oh, for Pete's sake. Quiet, Mr. You know, Doctor, that could be why the bullets fired by Sergeant Barnes had no seeming effect. That's right. Merely holes drilled into vegetable matter. This screen fluid here, like plant sap. It's at this point we discover how enthusiastic Dr. Carrington is about the thing. He wants to preserve and study the arm and try to find out as much as he can about it and make an attempt to communicate with it. That's when they hear a sound and they notice the arm is moving by itself. It's Dr. Carrington's theory that the warm blood from the animals is allowing the arm to function on its own, basically telling us that the thing lives off our blood. Captain Hendry and the boys gather up some weapons, including an axe, which I personally appreciate, and begin to search for the thing. Dr. Carrington tells Captain Hendry to make sure they capture it for research and not destroy it. They search many rooms down the hallway with the help of their Geiger counter. One room they pick up some like severe readings, but Dr. Carrington assures them there's nothing in there, that it's probably just being thrown off by radioactive isotropes. They continue searching until they reach the door at the end of the hall, which is the green room. Dr. Chapman opens the door, and they go inside. They do a look around, and they don't find anything out of the ordinary. However, we see a sense of concern on Dr. Carrington's face. After they leave the room, Carrington stays behind, and he secretly talks with his scientists. Gentlemen, I just happened to notice. Look at these molds. Well, they're wilted. The only thing... A could... blast of icy air of that rear door was opened. 
Have another look at that lock, will you, Professor? Yes, sir. Ten or fifteen seconds of such exposure would do it. Exactly. What would that lead you to? That it may have been in here. Without a doubt. Dr. Carrington, you were right. The lock's been forced and bent back into position again. The key's gone. Someone has entered and gone and locked the door from the... Look, see how it glistens in the light? It's a smear of blood sap from the wounded arm. You don't suppose? Open it, please. Sled dogs. Not even cold yet. And it doesn't seem kind of shrunken. Yeah. Is there any blood in there? None. No blood. Blood has been drained. Everything falls right into line. What could be more natural for a being of its kind than seeking out the only open earth within miles? It came here for refuge, heard us, and ran. It's been here, and it'll come back again. We'd better tell Captain. I don't agree with you, Doctor. I think it's far better if science rather than Doctor, the Doctor, are you sure this is the best thing this time? I'm sure we can communicate with it. We must. It's wiser than we are. It's our only chance to talk to it, to learn so many things. Dr. Carrington, you try. You can understand that, Stern. Will you stand guard here with me tonight, Uri's? And you, Lawrence? Very clearly, Dr. Good. Stern, tell Dr. Auerbach and Dr. Olson what we've found. Ask them to come back and relieve us in the morning. And tell them, please, to confide in Noah. The next scene, Captain Hendry and a few of the boys come in from a long search for the thing. Then another group comes in, and they all start checking with each other to see if anybody had found anything, and that's when one of Dr. Carrington's scientists comes through the door. Easy, Doctor. Easy. It'll be all right. What happened, Doctor? In the greenhouse I was working, I couldn't see. Yeah. Then, then a blast of cold air, and I heard Olsen scream. When I turned, the thing struck at me. Go on. I don't remember my head. I must have fallen. When I came to, I saw Olson and Arbok. They were... Give me some more of that. Get those axes. Go ahead, Doctor. They were both hanging from the beams upside down. They were dead. Their throats were cut. So, together, they gather their axes, and they march down the hall towards that once-locked door to the green room. greenhouse is an outside door. You get out that way. Captain, we can get to it from here through the generator room. You two go with him. You mean you want us to go in? seal the door with lumber, oil drums, anything you can find. That's better. Easy now. Give him time to get there. Pat. Pat, I want a picture. You get back with the rest. Don't be silly. <laughs> That'll cost you drinks, guy. Oh, I'm a beer. Ready, Bob? No, but go ahead and open it. That's right. Holy crap. This is when we get our first decent look at the thing. 
and he has this very Frankenstein type look. It's a he has a menacing growl and he's very intimidating. And so they barricade the door, and that's when Captain Hendry turns to Doctor Carrington and he wants answers. Doctor Carrington, he's extremely defensive, and this tips off Captain Hendry that there's definitely something that he must be hiding. So he orders the doctor to be confined to parts of the camp. Next scene, Dr. Carrington calls his scientists to meet with him. And this is one of my favorite scenes with Dr. Carrington. Gentlemen, we find ourselves in a battle. I'm not referring to the minor argument of Captain Hendry, but this creature from a new world. Two of our colleagues have died. Third is injured. Those are our losses, and there may be more. This creature is more powerful and more intelligent than we are. He regards us as important only for his nourishment. He has the same attitude toward us as we have toward a field of cabbages. That is our battle. Only science can conquer him. All other weapons will be powerless. Only. So, Nikki reads his notes, and they discover that Dr. Carrington had planted the thing's arm in the ground drenched it with blood plasma that they had kept on reserve for the crew in case of emergency, the thing, in being like a plant, started to sprout life. We see several cocoons coming out of the soil, and they're throbbing? Breathing? Dr. Carrington, who at this point is beyond exhausted, he's trying to defend his work, as even his scientist colleagues are beginning to suspect that he's going mad. Next scene... Nikki is working on a typewriter, and Captain Hendry barges in. He tells her that he has noticed several of the blood plasmas he brought to camp are missing, and that's when she's forced to show him Dr. Carrington's notes. He leaves and checks on Dr. Carrington in his lab. He sees all of the experiments, and he confronts Dr. Carrington. They have a quick powwow, and he goes and joins up with the other members of the crew, the storm at this point is just getting worse, and so they're forced to bring in all their guards from outside to come back in and get warm. That's when Nikki knocks on the door, and she lends us some wonderful advice. Anybody around here want some coffee? No, but you can come in. It's the only reason I brought it. I was hoping you might ask me in. Who wants some? I could use a half. What were you saying, Scotty? I was just wondering if that's enough, thanks. What happens if our boyfriend gets lonely and starts strolling around? Ends up in here. What do we do? I've been trying to figure that, too. Nothing seems to hurt it. $64 question. What do you do with a vegetable? Boil it. What'd you say? Boil it. Stew it. Bake it. Fry it. Hey, that makes sense. Cold doesn't bother it. Maybe Dr. Carrington will ask it to crawl into a double boiler. Or maybe you could borrow a flamethrower from somebody. Captain, I've got a crazy idea. We've got lots of kerosene, and we could... Point three, point four... Here's where we start cooking. Point five, point six... Watch it, everybody. That thing's out of the greenhouse. Be sure and stay together. Point nine. Captain, what about throwing kerosene on and setting it on fire? Sure. We can try. Get that... Here's a ball can. I'll take it, sir. This scene is fantastic. The Geiger counter reaches an all-time high. They hear a window break, and they prepare for the thing to enter the room. It barges through this door, and it, that's when it is doused in kerosene, and then they hit it with a flare gun. 
it goes up in flames. They continue to throw buckets of kerosene on it, and it goes up in even more flames. Some of the guys are hitting it with pickaxes, and it just kind of turns and it knocks them away and it dives out the window and it crashes into the snow, but it's still at this point, it gets up and it runs off into the storm, leaving the guys to try to put out the fire. So we know at this point the fire had hurt it, but still had not so much about killing it. They gather in the back half of the camp and prepare for round two. They set out to gather more kerosene, more fire extinguishers, but that's when the electrical engineer of the group he gets a really good idea. Now look. Put one of the intercoms here. That'll take care of this end. And we'll put another down here at the junction in the corridor. Check them to see if they work through the mess hall. Right. Captain, I just thought of something. You said you were going to use kerosene again. You know anything better? Or something hotter. We have enough cable to stretch to the greenhouse. Why not use electricity? You mean your lighting system? No. No, we can hook in a new transformer Dr. Chapman's been using. It's a high-voltage outfit and will give us plenty of amps. Enough to burn them? More than enough. Well, could you use leads to two poles and catch in between them? If you insulate the poles. Sounds good. Bob, give my hand. Captain Hendry and Scotty are talking, and that's when Nikki notices that, hey, she can see their breath, whereas before, she couldn't. They start to notice that it does seem a little colder inside, and apparently it's because the heat is off. After they check on it, they realize it's not receiving any oil. Then they discover it's not only the heat in that room, but it's the whole camp. The thing had somehow managed to clog the main line, which comes from outside, and is making an attempt to freeze them out. And so, it's 40 degrees inside, and it's 60 below outside. And if they don't do something fast, they're all going to freeze within an hour. Everyone gathers in the generator room except for our band of heroes that are going to create an electronic flytrap to capture and electrocute the thing. They start gathering and laying out silver wiring, and it kind of looks like chicken fence, so to speak. They're stretching it out. Then they lay out this path that's made of wooden planks, kind of like a railroad track is what it looks like, and they lace it up with the silver around it. And the idea is that the thing will walk on the planks and it will lead to a silver conductive death. At this point, the Geiger counter, it starts to go up. 1.2, 1.4. So the thing is definitely approaching. They decide to go ahead and turn out some of the lights, and they're going to meet it in the hall and then lead it down to the trap. The thing, it breaks through the door and begins to chase them down the hall. As it approaches their trap, something happens that they didn't expect, and Dr. Carrington runs out of the generator room and attempts to communicate with it. Listen, I'm your friend. Look, I have no weapons. I'm your friend. You're wiser than I. You must understand what I'm trying to tell you. Don't go any farther. They'll kill you. They think you mean to harm us all. But I want to know you, to help you. Believe that. You're wiser than anything on Earth. Use that intelligence. Look at me and know what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not your enemy. I'm a scientist. I'm a scientist who's trying...
So you heard it. A full clip with one minute of it being the sound of a super carrot getting fried. It's so cool. I wish that you could see the actual image, but for the early 1950s, this scene is freaking awesome. The thing gets reduced to a pile of ash. We're on the final scene of the film where Captain Hendry, Nikki, and the others, they gather around Scotty, who gets to finally deliver his message to the world. All right, fellas, here's your story. North Pole, November 3rd, Ned Scott reporting. One of the world's greatest battles was fought and won today by the human race. Here at the top of the world, a handful of American soldiers and civilians met the first invasion from another planet. A man by the name of Noah once saved our world with an arc of wood. Here at the North Pole, a few men performed a similar service with an arc of electricity. The flying saucer which landed here and its pilot have been destroyed, but not without casualties among our own meager forces. I would like to bring to the microphone some of the men responsible for our success. But as senior Air Force officer, Captain Hendry is attending to demands over and above the call of duty. Dr. Carrington, the leader of the scientific expedition, is recovering from wounds received in the battle. Good for you, Scotty. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the skies everywhere. Keep looking. Keep watching the sky. And there it is, folks. The Thing from Another World. Not too bad for a sci-fi horror film from 1951. The movie was based on a novella that was written by John W. Campbell Jr. And it was called Who Goes There? It was also remade in the 1980s by legendary horror director John Carpenter. Funny thing is, I had actually seen the remake first, and I absolutely love it. Carpenter's version, however, is actually a lot closer to the book, where this version that I ran through, it couldn't do some of the things due to the budget and some of the effects, but I will tell you that I love both these films equally. The movie was produced by Winchester Pictures and distributed by RKO Radio Pictures. The film actually did amazingly well in the box office, bringing in $1,950,000, which is almost $20 million by today's standard <laughs> for inflation adjustment, I should say. But the cool thing is it beat out all the other major sci-fi films that year. And there were some that are going to pop up on this podcast. The film was directed by Christian Neby. After this film... He went on to direct episodes for like Perry Mason and Twilight Zone, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, and The Six Million Dollar Man. So he did a lot of TV work. And he also had a successful career as an editor as he did work on a couple of my favorite Humphrey Bogart films, which are To Have and Have Not and The Big Sleep. One thing you'll know about this movie, especially if you look at the poster, is Howard Hawks' name is all over it. And Howard Hawks was a big name back in the day. And... He was a leading producer on the movie. He had a lot of influence in the direction and the writing and everything. And he was even uncredited on the screenplay. But if you know anything about Howard Hawks, it's the way that he does dialogue. It's very fast and very witty. And that's why throughout the movie, a lot of the characters are talking over each other. is because it's just a very fast-paced way that he does things. And that's, <laughs> that's throughout the film. Um, a couple of crazy things I do want to talk about about the film is the guy who played the thing, right? So the actor was, you know, bringing back Gunsmoke, he was in 635 episodes of Gunsmoke. 
He stands a towering six foot seven inches, and he is none other than Mr. James Arness. James got the role of playing the thing, get this, because it was turned down by John Wayne. Yeah, that John Wayne. From a Western guy to a Western guy. Hey, Western guy, you'd be a good alien. I don't know what's going on there, but a scene that I want to talk about is when the crew is standing on the ice and they all have their arms stretched out. You remember in the run-through where they discovered that because it was in a big circle, it wasn't a plane, it was a UFO? Yeah, that scene wasn't actually filmed in the North Pole or Alaska or anything, but it was in fact filmed at the RKO Ranch in 100-degree weather. So they were in the desert, and we thought it was a place covered in snow. Man, how they do things. This film is said to be the first one to use the man in the suit that is caught on fire. And that's right. I mean, no graphics here. Obviously, James Arness didn't do this scene, but the stuntman, whose name is Tom Steele, wore a suit that was made of asbestos and a fiberglass helmet. So think about all those horror movies and action movies that we've seen you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and up. Inspiration started right here. And the last thing I'll bring up about the movie is... The character who played Barnes, who's the guy that first saw the thing and was shot at him, his name is William Self. And after this picture, he actually became an executive producer over at 20th Century Fox for TV and worked on a ton of notable shows, including one that I love, Batman. So some pretty cool stuff and behind-the-scenes things that I was able to uncover, and that's a wrap. I mean, that's the episode. If you liked it and you want to watch the movie, go out there and buy it. You can find it anywhere from 8 to 10 bucks, new on DVD, or you can rent it digitally. But as of right now, it doesn't stream anywhere for free. I also want to take a second to promote my brand new YouTube channel that I do with my buddies Ed the Undid and Neil Fraser. So if you like comic books and cartoons, then I invite you to go check out Dave's Pop Culture Podcast YouTube channel. Every episode is going to be clean, family-friendly, and full of nostalgia and fun. Last thing I want to do is I want to thank Brian again for letting me do this little show that I love. It's an honor to be a part of his podcast, and I want to thank everybody who tuned in and listened. If you enjoyed the episode, then you're in luck, because this is pretty much how the show is going to be. So for now, clock back into reality and time, but keep your eyes and ears open, because next month, we are going to take another voyage to the podcast from another world.
guys very much for listening and checking out this bonus episode of a podcast from another world. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Terrible Terror podcast feed wherever you listen to your podcasts to make sure that you don't miss another episode of this bonus cast. If you're just kind of out there, you found this and you wanted something different to listen to. So it'll drop every month. Uh, once a month, except for the month that we do specials or I bring Dave on for, say, multiple episodes or anything like that, or the Halloween month where I always do four films. Uh, you know, Dave might be involved. And if there's an extra day and I've got an extra film, then, you know, there might still be uh, an extra podcast dropped. But those will only be really the only times that you won't find this bonus episode. So. Um, with that being said as well, uh, there's been talk of a contest and I keep forgetting to talk about it at the end of the episodes because you spend all this time <laughs> recording and, uh, then it totally slips my mind once we're done recording and I don't ever add anything. But at the end of the thing episode, the next episode of the Terrible Terror podcast, um, I'm going to give some details on what you need to do, and you can win some Terrible Terror swag, uh, as well as maybe a couple of DVDs uh, or some movies while you're at it. So listen in. Uh, it's going to be just a, you know, straight up contest. We're going to, you know, not try to do anything funky, and I'm going to work out the details with Dave because he is going to be involved as well. So, with that being said, thank you guys very much for listening. Don't forget to, you know, subscribe once again. I know I already said that once before. Uh, and check out the other episodes that are coming. And make sure you go check out the bonus episode that we did for Christmas. It was a lot of fun. Uh, and then the next episode of the Terrible Terror Podcast will be the thing. So, don't forget to check that out. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side.